Hello, and thank you for joining us for the Smart Districts webinar. This is part three of our Best Practices Showcase series. I'm Sarah Bemprad with Wilcom, and I'm very excited to introduce a great panel of speakers today. Before we get to know them, um, let's take a quick look at the housekeeping items. You can use the Q&A section to submit your questions or comments for the audience. And for the best webinar experience, we recommend that you log out of any other internet applications that are currently running. If you do need help throughout the webinar, just reach out to me at sbamparat at wilcom.com. We are recording the session, and you can also download a copy of the um, presentation deck from the handout section. Our webinar is sponsored by CDCNet, POE Texas, and Binhomes, and we'll learn more about these companies throughout the session. And with that, I'd like to introduce you to the moderator for today's event, Mike Smith. Mike is a real estate technology expert with more than 50 years of experience focused on technology, operations, infrastructure, innovation, and energy saving solutions for the real estate industry. He launched Whitespace in 2015 um, to provide a single source of building technology solutions for the real estate market. Mike, thank you very much for moderating. I will turn it over to you. Thank you, Sarah. Um, appreciate the opportunity to speak with everyone today. We have an exciting webinar today. It's it's part three of, of the Smart District um, series uh, from Realcom, and you know today we want to really talk about talk talk with some innovative uh, folks in the industry who are doing some amazing things, that, and I'm excited for you to hear about it. Today's webinar, we'll be talking about taking the concepts of smart buildings to a completely different level in what we call smart districts and really emphasizing the importance of developing infrastructure um, that's based on integrated technology platforms powered by next generation, high speed, low latency connectivity. Today, we're going to talk with some uh, of the people who are involved in these innovative districts and, and see about the technology strategies necessary to develop um, these digital urban neighborhoods of the future. Um, our first uh, presenter will be Derek Tillman from uh, BTG Development. Um, Derek is a thoughtful leader who is forging ahead to create new opportunities for community build out. As a CEO and president of BTG Development, uh, Derek and his mission, is it is his mission to rebuild healthy and sustainable communities through residential and commercial development. Welcome, Derek. Thank you, you? Mark. I'm, I'm great, glad to be here. All right, so thanks again, Mike. Uh, my name again, Derek Tillman, President and CEO of Bridging the Gap Development. I uh, wanted to talk to you all for a few moments about smart and high-performing buildings at a budget. Uh, Bridging the Gap Development, we've been in business since 2006 uh, when I founded the company. Um, we focus on rebuilding healthy and sustainable communities using technology. Um, we're also uh, building socially responsible development. Our mission is to bridge gaps, to bridge gaps both of opportunity and also to bridge gaps in development. When we say bridging gaps of opportunity, really focused on creating opportunities for minorities, for women, as well as the local residents and communities that we're serving. And then bridging gaps in development, which is focused on bringing catalytic, transformative development projects to different communities, both communities that are already thriving as well as communities that are in transition. We do that through affordable housing, we do market rate, mixed income, 
We do commercial real estate projects, retail, office, mixed use, and also com uh, community and cultural space. Um, part of my background, uh, I was an information science major uh, at the University of Pittsburgh. So now I'm utilizing uh, that background uh, in, in the development world. So the history of sustainability. In the early 60s, uh, this is when really conservation and activism was really big. It was all about dreaming it. Um, moving into the early 90s, this is when Passive House was founded. Um, also the California Renewable Portfolio Standard. Um, this is really called, kind of during the think it phase where there was prescriptive uh, standards. We moved into the early 2000s when the Green Building Initiative and the Living Building Challenge were enacted where performance standards started to really uh, come about, you know, where more folks were talking about proving it into uh, now um, where it's really about being able to defend it. No longer is just placing a plaque on, on a building good enough, um, but we need to be able to defend it and prove it. And there's uh, measures, um, you know, kind of coming down, uh, such as, for example, in New York, they have a New York uh, climate mobilization uh, emissions legislation. City of Pittsburgh has an energy disclosure law. So more and more uh, municipalities are moving in this direction. Um, so, it's, so it's really important as we move forward. Um, our, this, uh, the project uh, that, that I'm going to talk a little bit more about in a few moments, um, really we wanted to, uh, you know, kind of capitalize on and, and uh, explain that the project is consistent with the UN SDGs, the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Um, and, and with this is really about uh, creating and bringing forth proof of results that matter. Uh, with our projects, um, uh, it really weaves through all these components, whether we're talking about good uh, health and well-being, um, affordable and clean energy, good paying uh, jobs, uh, are really a heart of what really matters mo uh, most to me is reducing fuel poverty. And how we do this is through passive house. And then also equitable air in indoor air quality. And really in a post-COVID world, um, indoor air quality is, is really even that much more important. We're doing this through a technology uh, known as reset air. The thing is with these kinds of uh, innovative technologies and sustainable development measures, it should not have to cost more to get it. But it's really about uh, how early you start. Um, it can't be something that you add on toward the end. It can't be an add all. It needs to be intentional. Um, you need to really bring the right team together early to be able to actually uh, develop these types of projects um, either at a, at a cost neutral or even lower cost. But again, um, the McLean curve um, really reminds us that the ability to control these costs, it's all about that early onboarding. Any building ultimately can be high performing, um, but you, know, it, you have to start with these components. A building's potential is found by merging the digital and the real world. So we start with the conceptual design where I really talk about uh, the, 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 the beautiful aesthetic uh, components that we want. That's really gonna attract uh, tenants, that's really gonna set us apart from other projects, um, that's really gonna be an impact to the community. But then moving to an energy model to be able to uh, model um, how just how sustainable uh, this project is gonna be in the long, long term, but then that has to 
be translated into the actual design and implementation. Uh, the, the most innovative project that we're doing right now um, that we're very excited about is uh, Fifth Indemnity. This is a project uh, we, we competitively uh, won through a RP process where we're developing both sides of the street. So at the top uh, right, you see um, a, an adaptive reuse of an existing building, which is 20,000 square feet. We're also adding a 20,000 square foot addition. Um, the project will include uh, commercial office space, co-working space. Uh, we'll have a small footprint for retail. So we'll have a, uh, a coffee shop and something else to serve as a community. And then we're actually also doing a training program uh, in conjunction with some community partners to do training focused on clean energy jobs. So we'll be teaching things like how to install solar panels um, and things of that nature. Directly across the street, we're building a uh, New construction project is all, um, you know, ground up construction. It's a 171 units, mixed income. It's two buildings connected by a sky bridge. This is a side view um, that you see here. And it also has 12,000 square feet of retail space. Both projects will be certified Passive House. Passive House is one of the highest standards for energy efficiency and sustainability. Um, both projects will be FitWell certified. FitWell focuses on public health research um, and, and also incorporates uh, a lot of healthy living and healthy lifestyle components. Uh, it will be Reset Air certified, as I mentioned before, focusing on advanced air quality. Um, the West site, which is the, um, the 171 unit project, uh, will also be built utilizing off-site construction. And we will have a smart building infrastructure uh, in, in both projects. And that smart building infrastructure will be able to measure everything from our from our energy um, to uh, you know to to several other uh, components throughout throughout the project. Everything will will be um, within a centralized system um, that we will be able to um, understand that data. Um, and apply it towards uh, future projects. So how do we accomplish all of this? We accomplish all of it utilizing an OPR, which is owner's project requirements. This is how I'm able to hold the team accountable, um, that we don't just have a great kickoff meeting, we talk about all these aspirational goals, and then it's never you know, uh, really talked about again. Um, this uh, allows us to have an, an alignment um, across the entire team so everyone knows what we're doing, what the sustainable development goals are, what our um, MWB participation goals are, um, you know, what our uh, technology um, in incorporated uh, components are, et cetera. Um, but the commitment to this has to be from day one, day one of the project design so that you send a clear message to the entire team um, that this is what we want to see. Any building can be smart. Um, any building can also be high performing, um, but one does not equal the other. So doing a building that has connected IoT or digital or whole building analytics or doing a, a high performance building that focuses on sustainability, one does not equal the other. They have to be uh, intentionally incorporated um, both components for you to actually have both. And our fifth indemnity project is both um, are both smart buildings as well as high performance buildings. Um, so this is our last slide. Uh, really just 
um, being intentional that, that the moves and decisions that we make are, are intentional, that we don't have regret at the end. Um, in order to, uh, this is really the merger of building science and data science, um, utilizing the OPR to set metric goals. Um, we demand open integrated operational technology so that we can, um, you know, so that certain things won't be proprietary, that we can really get all the information that we need um, to, to know how everything is performing, but also to see uh, how the technology is helping um, to produce a, a a better building, you know, not just for the first five years, but for, for, the, for the entire lifespan uh, of ownership and beyond. Um, and the easiest uh, way to do this uh, for us um, is, has been energy consumption and, and indoor air quality. Um, that that produces zero energy, zero carbon, world-class indoor air quality. So with that, I just want to thank you all for your time and for listening to my presentation. Thank you, Derek. Appreciate that. Um, I also want to remind everyone who's listening into the webinar that you can post your questions uh, to the chat, and we'll be watching those. So um, at the end uh, of the, uh, the all the discussions, we'll have a panel discussions, and we'll get to your questions at that point. Um, Derek, thank you for the presentation. I, you know, you, you mentioned early on about your background in in technology. How important is that in what you're trying to do, both as a developer? and 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 uh the projects that you get involved with from an innovation perspective absolutely it's it's very important i think uh you know having that background um you don't have to really uh sell me on why it's important to incorporate um technology into buildings and and how it can help buildings be more efficient um as, as well as you know why these technologies will really kind of move the ball forward as we think about developing sustainable communities. Um, so uh, we understand the bottom line, but we also understand how technology and sustainable development will, will move us forward, you know, for the next 20 to 50 years. And then talk to me about your, your team in general um, that you've assembled to kind of do this, Mayor. Are they all uh, technology people? You, get, you just got to kind of mishmash, kind of walk me through the, the perfect team uh, for these developments. Yeah, you know, like like anything, you you need a strong team. Uh, you know, I think about the, the the dream team from from the NBA. The way they were able to win all those uh, championships was they had the right people in the right places. Um, so that's that's what we do. You know, uh, so we have a sustainable development com consultant. We have an operational uh, technology consultant, um, as well as you know, ensuring that our architect you know understands and is designing. And incorporating all these components, um, so we really have this unison from the beginning, um, and then moving that into construction. So the the, the team, in order to really bring this to fruition and not just be an aspirational goal, uh, the team is is critical um, to to having full implementation. Thank you, appreciate your awesome. presentation, and and we'll we'll hear more from Derek um, at the panel discussion towards the end of the webinar. Uh, before our next presenter, um, we have a short video. In 
just a few decades, 68% of us will be living in cities. But did you know that cities account for three quarters of all global CO2 emissions and population growth and poor planning is making the problem worse? With our transformational AI software platform, we pledge to try and make the world's most polluted cities more sustainable, clean, and efficient because we want to build a better future for our children. And we want you to join us. Oh, Mike, you might be on mute. Sorry, because that's the, the, the uh, big full pot there. Um, so Jason Thomas is the um, our next presenter, and he is the business development manor, manager at City Zenith. Jason is an experienced sales consultant with a background spanning the technology and AEC sectors. He's been with City Zenith since January 2020, helping revolutionize the digital twin market for AEC prof professionals. Uh, good morning, Jason. Hi Mike, thank you for the introduction there and uh, thanks for the opportunity to present. Um, so I'm going to talk about City Zenith. We are a technology provider and we've been running now since 2009 and we specialize in digital twin technology. And really this revolves around our use of the technology um, for urban digital twins, how we're deploying this at district and at campus level and how we're using that to help to decarbonize um, the urban environment. So that, that advert that you saw there is linked to our Clean Cities, Clean Future pledge. That's us looking to pledge our technology to 15, uh, 10 to 15 major cities across North America in order to help them meet their objectives. As far as urban digital twins are concerned, um, well, digital twins aren't new. Um, they're a new buzzword within AEC. They've been used for decades within aerospace, within manufacturing. Uh, within gas and oil um, really the complexity around multiple different types of system the amount of the sheer amount of data that needs to be trans uh, transferred understood interpreted simulated has caused a real headache with the industry so what we have pulled together is a, a centralized composite a toolkit as such a digital twin platform that allows you to create a digital representation of those physical assets within the built environment whether they are buildings, um, whether they are infrastructure, whether they are utilities, um, could be street lamps, could be connecting CCTV. We heard um, uh, from Derek around the use of indoor environmental sensors and, and how that's impacting health. Um, this is all that we are connecting um, within the digital twin platform in order to provide insight and allow you to make data-driven decisions. why are they the right answer um, i think the right answer um, is because the time has come where we have the technology we have the bandwidth we have the understanding and we also have a, a massive impetus to look at how we reduce carbon emissions within cities 70 percent of the world's carbon footprint comes from cities from buildings um, so we look to work with steering groups within cities such as the green building council um, such as 2030 districts, such as C40, to work with their building owners in order to help meet their objectives of either 20%, 40%, 100% um, carbon reduction by 2030. And the reason that we're able to do that is we can aggregate mass data 
Um, when we talk about digital twins, we think about IoT. Uh, really, we take that more to a city uh, context of being able to aggregate GIS information, consume BIM data from the design and construction through to handover, and be able to aggregate databases, um, be able to uh, integrate with third party software and vendors um, like simulation tools, for example, microclimate analysis, floodplain analysis, um, foot, foot flow, traffic analysis, etc to manage complex solutions. And if we're able to aggregate all of this information, that allows us to scenarioize and predict, which is something that we've been missing within, within the built environment. Um, it's easy to predict outcome of a product, um, of, a, of an engine, um, of a particular system, but when you're bringing together dozens, if not hundreds of individual data sources and systems, very difficult to understand what you're looking at how you interpret it and then how you use that to optimize moving forward. I think if you look at what's happened with the Biden administration with 200 billion that's been um, been allocated, if you look at the three and a half trillion um, bill that's just been passed on infrastructure, uh, digital twins are going to help to pull this information together to start driving that change. And we believe that we've built a platform that's going to uh, specifically target energy consumption um maintenance um uh, tenant renewal indoor environmental health and then all of the infrastructure that goes with it by being able to understand a problem you can deploy um, strategies so whether it's go green whether it's um, introduction of new technologies within a building like building management system and en energy management system whether you start to move towards geothermal um, whether you start to look at retrofit and uh, energy transition these are all possible within the digital twin and this also helps to meet guidelines and help to uh, to generate revenue so if you look at different states different cities across north america there are the financial penalties for not meeting your energy performance or your carbon output or there are incentives for becoming a green certified building and really we we're able to then help calculate the payback the initial return on investment um, the return on um on, on uh, capital and how you can then reinvest moving forward to go even further into into green how we're doing that is through our clean cities clean future program um, we have already onboarded three cities uh, the first has gone global and that's been re uh, publicly released with new york city um, that is the uh, brooklyn navy yard working in partnership with the 2030 district in New York City. Um, there are seven buildings that we are bringing on board within that, um, that particular district to begin with, and that will then grow over the next nine months as that becomes a, a commercial um, enterprise for the 2030 district. Um, this is in partnership with AFG, the Agile Fractal Grid. They specialize in energy and communications as a service. Um, smart um, energy grids. I'm um, so working with Buildy, who are uh, one of the building um, program managers there, and also working with the university, um, NovaCab on site, and 3DFS. Um, the purpose here is to look at a cross section of buildings, um, look at brand new buildings, um, how they operate, how we incorporate the technology, how we optimize, um, as well as bringing on older buildings that aren't sophisticated. 
um, looking at what good looks like, how you can replicate that and look at lessons learned. And this is why we're encouraging universities to become a part of this because it then becomes a research project. Um, I think Derek alluded to the fact that the, the buildings and performance, they don't go hand in hand. It, it's really a cultural drive. Buildings don't use energy, people do. So how do we start to use nudge theory within those districts to start to drive change through community engagement as well? Uh, next on the list is um, coming through now. There's a bit of a lag, apologies for this. There we go, knew that would happen. Um, so next one coming through is um, actually um, Pittsburgh. So this is working again with the 2030 district, uh, University of Pittsburgh and the city of Pittsburgh. Again, we're doing this district by district, um, looking to pull this through. Um, lots of different use cases in here around decarbonisation, um, reinvesting, um, reinvesting capital into green projects. And then the last of those is actually with Phoenix, and that's in partnership with Amazon. Um, and that is going to be around how they can uh, repopulate um, the, the urban spaces. Um, the goals vary from city to city. I think the energy strategy um, rings true across all of those, but each of them have their own nuances as to, as to the types of cities, the density. Um, but really, we want to be able to help them use the digital twin for uh, policy making, decision making, planning, um, help them to, to tap into that $280 billion worth of savings that ABI have forecasted. Um, and a lot of this comes down to the, the carbon um, element of this. Um, I'm just coming up for time, so that, that wraps me up, but um, thanks for listening. Thank you, Jason. Um, one, one quick follow-up follow question. You know, when we hear the term digital twin, we think of, I think a lot of people think it has to be a very sophisticated, high-end building, right, a newer building. Um, talk to me about how you get involved, especially on the city level, on older buildings, and what do they need to, to know, or how do they get involved in making their buildings somewhat smarter to aggregate the data into your platform? That's a really good question, Mike. Um, you're right, people think it's the all bells and whistles buildings that are the smart buildings. Uh, we've worked with customers in commercial real estate that have 2D drawings, Excel spreadsheets, which are exports from systems. Um, we are able to uh, consume that data in the back end, create channels, help to visualize that, understand it, query it, and then run analytics and simulation off the back of it. So we can go as low as a uh, the common denominator of an Excel spreadsheet. It's the data that's important, the, the source of it and the, the file format of it, really, it doesn't make too much of a difference to us. It's around what is the desired outcome, um, what is the focus, what's the success criteria, and what's readily available in order to help paint a picture of success. And I think the sensor technology, the price has come down and um, it is a little oh, yeah. more cost effective and palatable for people to get in and, and get in, start small, right? And and and, and uh, start putting sensors in collecting that data as you try to grow those older buildings and make them more intelligent. So um, yeah, thank you, Jason. Um, I appreciate it. Oh, good. I'm just going to say this, not just the, the cost of sensors, but the cost of scanning. So people that don't have BIM models 
you can very cheaply go out and scan a building now, create 3D geometry, which is then a reference point of an as-built, which again, you can start to layer information on top of. Awesome, well, thank you. We'll, we'll, we'll expand more on that during the panel discussion. Thank you. Uh, thank before you. our next presenter, I believe we have a video again. Thank you. Our next presenter is uh, Tyler Andrews. He's the CEO of POE Texas. Um, Tyler is a leader and influencer on intelligent buildings and power over Ethernet. With his unique mix of technology expertise, construction experience, project management knowledge, Tyler leads POE Texas by making uh, technology accessible to facilitate owners. Not to facility owners, sorry. Uh, good afternoon, Tyler. How are you? Thank you, Mike. I'm doing well. Thank you for that introduction. Well, and it's my pleasure to speak to you today about the role IoT using Power over Ethernet plays in enabling smart cities and districts. To do that, I'm going to share a case study from a recent project we completed in the historic district of Deep Ellum in Dallas. The Continental Gin Building showcases the key challenge we face making existing cities and districts smart. Existing population centers have decades or centuries of existing buildings and infrastructure already in place. Building new cities or districts from the ground up with 100% new infrastructure is rare and frankly very costly. Dubai doesn't happen every day. In this case, Power over Ethernet provides a cost-effective method for what we call re-innovation of existing buildings. Let's look at how. Continental Gin is a key landmark in Deep Ellum, a historic district in downtown Dallas going through, through a revitalization. Originally a manufacturing facility, the developers wanted to update the 50,000 square foot space to high-end co-working offices and conference rooms. They wanted the design aesthetic to keep the ceilings open and uncluttered as much as possible while upgrading to cutting edge amenities, including an intelligent, sustainable lighting system. Power over Ethernet lighting and automation fit that application very well because it reduces the lighting conduits by 100% and the copper runs by 60%. The type of wiring, CAT6, also minimizes penetrations through historic walls and spaces. This allowed developers to upgrade the space to cutting edge amenities while keeping the historic feel of the building. Alan Hill, the CTO of Empowered Over Ethernet, approached us to collaborate with them on a design and installation of our Denton Digital Building Intelligence System, which is a PoE-based automation platform. Our joint key objectives for the system included reducing the conduits and wall penetrations fast installation of an intelligent system, intuitive automation so occupants could benefit from it, 
remote installation and startup support so they could reduce costs over having a highly paid technician on site. And using a powered over ethernet based lighting and automation system fit in terms of features and complexity. The facility completed earlier this year and we built a body of lessons learned from this historic re-innovation. First, retrofitting existing buildings benefits from strong processes and teams in coordinating documentation. There are always unforeseen conditions in a historic building and having clear processes documenting the equipment installation makes navigating those situations easier. Second, early engagement with authorities having jurisdiction, or HJs, is crucial to code analysis prior to the start of construction. Cities with a long history of code enforcement often have outdated or conflicting code statutes that require an AHJ to interpret them. Collaboration with those code officials early means they have time and ability to find the right means for incorporating updated technologies. And by that, I mean basically anything designed after Edison created the first light bulb. There is by no means, no, sorry, this challenge is by no means unique to PoE IoT. Third, PoE still requires engagement with and participation from electricians to install emergency lighting elements as required by code. Fourth, studying the data over the past nine months of operations, the energy savings of the project exceeded expectations. Code required a 0.9 lumens per watt limit for the power usage, and our data trends show the site operating at 0.3 lumens per watt. Fifth, because PoE does not require conduit and has a simpler installation method, the installer estimates a 30% savings on the install with particular benefits around rework. I mentioned the unforeseen conditions before, and having PoE not require conduits or direct wiring for each light switch to the light fixture means the contractor could handle minor rework very cost effectively over a traditional electrical system. I'll wrap up this presentation highlighting the key benefits for power over ethernet in bringing existing cities and districts into the intelligent building age. It scales well to provide fit for purpose solutions, not too much and not too little. It re-innovates buildings by allowing for minimum impact installation of power and intelligence without the burden of conduits. It installs and programs faster than previous technologies in good part because it can be programmed remotely offsite. And finally, it allows for better access to technology because of its cost and installation benefits. As you're trying to answer the tough questions for your customers as to how to convert existing cities and districts to be smart, we encourage you to consider Power Over Ethernet as a technology alternative. Thank you for your time. And I'll hand it back to Mike. Hi, Tyler. Um, I, I love the concept of PoE lighting. We, we've dabbled in it in, my, in our previous uh, career. Um, one of the issues that we always had, though, was there weren't a lot of choices of lights. Talk to me about how that's changed or evolved now. And, and were you limited by the number of lights that went into this uh, Continental Gen building in, in Dallas? That's a great question. All of the light fixtures were designer selected. And the great news with what Power Ethernet lighting does today is it's simply replacement of the LED driver of existing LED light fixtures. So you can do any number of lights, including traditional light bulb fixtures. You can replace existing lights that, or you can replace the LED driver on existing lights. So 
there's a wide range of selection of products and the compatibility is very large. So uh, in this case in particular, the design of the light fixtures was not a limitation for the facility. What about, you know, I know one of the benefits uh, we've always talked about with PoE lighting is traditionally there's a battery, right? It's a battery backup natural in the system already. Um, in this case, did you use that and how much battery, if you disconnected the system, how much battery life would you get in a traditional uh, building like this? That's a great question. So in this particular case, we did install a battery backup lighting system. And for this application, they wanted to go with the code minimum, which was a 90 minute battery backup system for their emergency lighting, which is what we did. So the system has a, a backup light, backup D DC battery system that powers the lights that are used for emergency exits. We didn't go Great. quite all the way like Farouk. I know Farouk did this beautiful giant system that powers his hotel for like six hours. Yeah, yeah. And that, and that goes to the point we were talking about fit for purpose. Sometimes that makes sense for your application and sometimes it doesn't. Right, exactly. Well, thank you. I look forward to speaking with you, with you more um, during the panel discussion. Thank you, Mike. All right, our, our, our final uh, panelist uh, is Chuck Nicewanger. Chuck, I hope I said that correctly. Um, I, uh, thank you. Ch Chuck is the uh, president of Nice Nets Consulting. Um, nice, uh, Chuck is a uh, uh, Nice Nets Consulting is a veteran-owned independent technology advisory service company specializing in commercial and corporate real estate. He provides business with unbiased guidance on technology strategy, selection, integration, and implementation. Welcome, Chuck. All right. Thanks again, Mike. I appreciate it. Um, I'm going to start with this slide of the skyline of Ocean Park by Vin Holmes during the construction phase over the past two years because I think it represents their professionally planned residential areas, optimized service utilities, clean, green environment. And as Derek mentioned earlier, it's a commitment to collect and analyze data from day one data that ultimately results in the in an ideal living experience for its citizens. This Ocean Park project is one of several smart district efforts Vin Homes has in Vietnam. This one's located at the northeast entrance of the capital city of Hanoi. And I suspect that most attendees on this webinar will be hearing about this level of innovation in Vietnam for the first time. I wasn't aware of it until April of this year when Vin Homes approached me about developing a case study for their Technopark Tower seen here. I'll talk more about that in just a second. Vin Homes transformed 420 hectares, which is just over a thousand acres, into this ultimate live, work, play, shop, learn, smart ecosystem in partnership with other subsidiaries within Vin Group, one of Asia's largest multi-industry private corporations with a market capitalization of nearly 16 billion US dollars. And as we have heard from previous speakers, smart districts can be defined a lot of ways, but typically technologically modern urban areas that collect data and use different methods and sensors that then use that data to manage assets, resources, and services efficiently, responsibly, and safely. And data can be collected from IoT devices, buildings, infrastructure assets, weather, other public services, and to some extent, even a district's citizens. That data is then processed and analyzed to 
to uh, manage those building performance categories mentioned earlier, but can also include services such as transportation systems, network supplies, waste, crime detection, schools, and hospitals. Interestingly enough, Vin, Vin Homes focuses on the real estate development in partnership with other Vin Group subsidiaries that are uniquely focused on family play areas, theme parks, entertainment venues, shopping centers, hospitals, green spaces, and schools, including Vin University seen here in partnership with Cornell and the University of Pennsylvania to offer multiple advanced degree programs, which then offer a large pool of talented individuals to support the technology focused companies that are within the district. This is Technopark Tower. It's the one of the major work locations in that live, work, play, shop, learn formula. It's a lead platinum design that's on track to be recognized as one of the top 10 smartest buildings in the world. And some quick facts about this building. It has 45 floors with over 8,500 sensors today and growing that monitor temperature, humidity, carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide concentrations, human movement, water, gas, and lighting. The solar panels cover over 3,000 square meters of lake surface and generate 600 kilowatts peak power. Its exterior is covered with 26 millimeter low E double pane argon filled gas uh, glass uh, windows. Uh, it has charging stations for electric vehicles and scooters with 660 bike storage units. The tenant application provides an efficient interface between the citizens and services. And I encourage you to read the full Technopark Tower case study in the link provided in the chat section. Sarah was going to set that up. This, uh, this campus network and server farm is monitored by the Ocean Park Command Center and it provides protection against cybersecurity. It has sensors and camera monitoring with artificial intelligence algorithms that identify medical emergencies, people falling down in the stairwells, weapons, control point access, automated no-touch elevators, temperature set points, and even automatically logging employees into their timekeeping system upon arrival. I'm showing this last slide here as uh, uh, alternative fuel transportations that encourage and promote using products developed by other subsidiaries, such as VinBus Ecology Transport Services. This is the first smart electric bus that provides comfort, quiet, and emission-free transportation. It controls the driver's behavior, route options, and announcements, and automatically lowers the exit steps for anyone who needs it. VinFast uh, manufactures these electric scooters and this particular electric car, it's the new EF35. It's gonna be introduced into the US market next year. And um, uh, Mike, I think uh, the one thing this also represents is this coordinated effort across multiple companies that make this project so unique. It's that symbiotic relationship, these companies that actually reflect the relationship between the district, the buildings, and the citizens that live there. Thank you, Chuck. Um, so see, seeing this, I mean, it, it, I, don't, I think the majority of us on this uh, webinar today probably didn't even know this existed. Um, and it makes me think that the the, uh, the Asia Pacific region is so far advanced from what we're trying to do. Talk to me about that. Like, are they really that far advanced? Is this just a one-off 
um, like how, how do they, how do we compare as from the U.S. and North America to what uh, they're doing over there? Definitely not a one-off. And I think if you've listened to Jim Young anytime when he talks about innovation and smart buildings, he talks about a 2004 trip to uh, uh, Japan, I believe, where they were turning the lights off automatically based on motion sensors. And he was like, why don't we have this here? And, uh, and you know, this with motion sensors and carbon monoxide, uh, they they are really embracing it. And I think the other thing in Asia Pacific, the idea of facial recognition and cameras is widely accepted. You don't hear ne nearly the pushback that you have on privacy issues. It's just more common knowledge there. So I think uh, get, gathering that data and leveraging that data to make decisions about the building is just uh, in, in, in a tremendous and widespread use in a variety of ways. Um, I'd like to ask the rest of the panelists to join us back on video. Um, I do have one more question for Chuck, and then I'd like the panelists to, to opine on it as well. You know, with all this technology, especially in, in what you're talking about here, Chuck, um, and monitoring and collecting data, I got to imagine that the security, the cybersecurity, uh, you know, all the policies and procedures have to be very strict around who sees what. Uh, when they see it, how they can do control. Talk to me about what you're seeing in that a project of that scale and how important security is. Security is uh, from a variety of perspectives, personal private information too. And people who walk in this building, uh, the visual, the, the, the facial recognition, they can opt out of that. They can use RFID if they want or biometrics on fingerprints. But even the cybersecurity that's protecting those networks is a key piece of protecting that data for uh, the individuals, for the companies, and for uh, operations of the equipment. So it is, it is an opt-in, and you could potentially opt-out opportunity for people who don't want to participate in that. That's what I've. Uh, that's why I understand it. Yes. Okay. Um, Derek, you know, kind of, kind of to you with the same type of question. Um, how are you guys approaching security, cybersecurity? Uh, everything that you know, we all we all fear about putting everything online and connecting all these systems. Are you seeing you know uh, any issues with that in your project or concerns? I should say. No, no, we're definitely not seeing any concerns. Uh, we have an amazing uh, consultant in Newcom and Boyd um, that we're working with uh, to incorporate uh, security on both the east and the west side. The project that I mentioned. Um, you know, uh, and, and it's really covering, you know, all bases um, and, and even having that technology uh, communicate with, with a centralized system um, is, is kind of all in one place, uh, whether it's security, uh, whether it's control systems, you know, whether it's sustainable development metrics, um, we'll have a centralized system, but we're not seeing any problems. And, um, you know, are glad that uh, technologies like this exist uh, to be able to incorporate in, uh, in our buildings. Jason, I'd like to get your kind of take on that as well, because you're aggregating a ton of data from different owners, uh, different cities. Um, how do you guys approach that cybersecurity threat? Yeah, it's a, a very, um, very hot topic. And we we have two options really. We can either host this behind a firewall and, and it follows the security protocol of the company or the city that we're working with, um, or we host it within a, a, an either a government cloud um, or we host it within a, a public cloud. Now, because we are the interface, because we are the the, the composite for that data, 
um, we really adhere to the, the security protocols of, of whoever it is that is hosting that. Um, we have a level of security in there with regards to permissions, um, who can access, what they can see, how they can access it. Um, but ultimately, we really reside wherever that project is to be hosted and follow the same uh, security protocols from that point of view. And you're not you're not doing control of devices, right? You're just aggregating data, running some analytics against it. So um, no one's going to get in your system and start turning things on and off, right? Uh, not yet. No. <laughs> when 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 we come to that, we'll be looking for um, SOC accreditation and and going down cybersecurity routes. Um, we have the ability to do the turn on and off. But in all, all fairness, as soon as you start talking about manual overrides, um, that's when people get scared. Um, so it's very much a walk before you can run scenario, um, trust the technology, trust the process, understand why you're doing it, and then start to build out those functionalities uh, moving forward. Um, I'd like to open up the question to, to the whole panel. Um, the big elf in the room is still COVID, right? Um, how has how that impacted either projects that you had in in development or planning for future uh, knowing that this is going to be around for a while how has that impacted the way we've looked at our buildings or the technology that goes into our buildings and i'll just open it up and we can kind of have a discussion there i i can go uh, real quick for for vietnam it's it's rough because the the, the covid is really ramped up there they don't have as many access to vaccines like we have here in the united states and uh, it has affected supply chain, it's affected the workers, and in fact, even with the Technopark Tower, it's affected the opening of that building. People are, are you know, still forced to work from home, so it, it doesn't get the attraction and maybe what their occupancy projections were going to be. That's going to be a real challenge for them because uh, getting back in the building is tough. I can jump in uh, as well. Uh, so, at least locally, uh, COVID has impacted our commercial market more than the residential, you know, office space, retail, et cetera. Retail is starting to climb back up. Um, but the multifamily was impacted for pretty much a few months and then it has really surged, uh, you know, almost uh, to higher levels pre-COVID. Um, how we're thinking about this is, um, you know, we were already uh, really thinking ahead with uh, technologies to produce healthier buildings. Um, so because of that, you know, it's, it's actually making our projects more attractive um, because we have things like, uh, you, know, um, you know, reset air, um, which is focused on, you know, air quality and, you know, other uh, components that really produce healthier, healthier buildings. I think these types of projects are gonna to continue to be that much more important um, you know, because of COVID, but even, you know, other type of environmental concerns. Um, so uh, for, for us, it's, it's having uh, technology and, and sustainable infrastructure is really a game changer. Um, but again, not as much impact residentially as, as commercially. We have our first audience question. Again, I would encourage anyone who's out there who has a question, please send that in. We'll kind of uh, uh, filter through those and uh, ask the question. So, so the, the audience question is, uh, what are the biggest challenges when developing a smart district strategy as opposed to a single building? Um, I'm happy to come in here. 
Um, one of the biggest things is data transparency, accuracy of data, and the willingness to share that data. Um, people do not like to let their competitors know what they're not good at. Um, and, being, and having that in a centralized platform and giving people permission, um, it scares people. So for us, it's been very much around um, understanding each of those building owners, um, each of those organizations desired outcomes, um, working and, and speaking their language, helping them to address those and bringing people on person by person and then push uh, or building by building, corporation by corporation, and then getting that community buy-in. Why are they doing that in the first place? What's the benefit going to be to the workers? What's the benefit going to be to the company? What's the benefit going to be to the wider um, the wider community? So we've very much done that through community engagement. Um, and you know, I think that's the biggest single issue we've had with strategy is, is data sharing. J Jason, that's such an excellent point. I think when I learned about this uh, project in Vietnam too with Vin Holmes, they, they've actually resolved some of that because uh, many of the uh, companies that they're dealing with are subsidiaries of that larger conglomerate. And so if the conglomerate owns the bus systems, they're sharing data. The conglomerate owns the, 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 the charging stations. They're putting in charging stations. They, they also own the VIN bus route. So they've negotiated the bus routes inside the city so they have strategically stopped at the, the main building at the very front of the main entrance of the building multiple times a day and on weekends. Um, they are using the monitoring system and the artificial intelligence monitoring to, uh, uh, to bring people into the building. And even the idea that you were talking about with before, sharing that data, the uh, uh, temperature taking, identification of people in, no touch high speed elevators, automatically adjusting building controls for temperature, indoor air quality monitoring, uh, car, car parking, air exchanges, all of that is part of their entire group. Yeah, they have a, a, a subsidiary that focuses specifically on the AI component. So it's a, that's a good way, I suppose, to handle it if you have that opportunity. And again, surprisingly, I, I think you're right, Mike, a, a lot of people will not have heard of this uh, project and the innovation that's going on in Vietnam, uh, you might suspect something like that, China, Japan, uh, other areas. But um, I, I was I was thrilled to see to get to get involved in this project. Um, what role does ESG play in the districts presented by the projects we're talking about today? So, Tyler, I'll start with you. Did, did, was there was there an ESG component? To the to the uh, retrofit project that you did, um, were they heavily involved in that? And by ESG, you're talking about sustainability, uh, environment, sustainability, and green build. Yes, governance. Yes. Yeah. Governance. Yeah. yeah, governance. Sorry. Um, yes. So, so there wasn't a there was a, an important element of it, which is they they we had talked about that being able to take the the amount of power you're dedicating to your lighting and reducing it. So that was a big element for the particular project we talked about in the Continental Gin, and it's one that we see very often and where PUE lighting and automation really does come, in to, come into its own because it is, it is a system that gives you the ability to monitor and track and be able to re 
report out on the, the energy savings you're able to achieve, as well as control. I think a big thing that is a, a big issue where we, we've seen in the past, and the big energy savings, you know, we went from incandescent bulbs to fluorescent to LED, and that's great energy savings. The big wins going forward are going to be the ability to control the system so that lights that aren't needed are just turned off and phantom loads that aren't needed are turned off automatically. And that's an, going to be an important element coming up in the future for how we take the next steps with sustainability. I could add one more, but I don't want to dominate. Derek, you want to go ahead? I'm sure. sorry. Um, yeah, I think, you know, uh, no, no longer is putting a plaque, you know, on, on a wall good enough, as I was saying in, in my presentation. Um, there's, uh, you know, been a demand for being able to, to, to prove it, um, you know, so, so ESG kind of comes into that. And I think this is where technology can play a key role um, to, to be able to, to show how, how we're being more environmentally conscious, um, you know, socially responsible, and, and, and you know, uh, being in alignment with, uh, with government re regulations as, as we move forward. So, so I think technology plays a key role in, uh, in ensuring that, you know, we actually can uh, play this out in, in, in the real world. Chuck, did you have something to add to that? I, I, yeah, I did. I just I was wanted to bring uh, attention to the weekly briefing that uh, RealCom published last Thursday. There was an article there uh, by Cohen Resnick. A shout out to Tom Huang and Julie Miner, uh, where they took ESG and turned it into a verb. So asking, are you ESGing? How? What does ESGing actually mean in a group? And when uh, when I even when I structured the case study for Techno Park Tower, that was those three areas were the areas that we focus in on how they were affecting the environment, the the material selection that went into the building construction were using low volatile organic compounds, the uh, air exchanges that were going on inside the building, natural light coming through, and I heard one thing too that uh, this group has done, Vin, Vin Holmes has done with this building. I've never heard that before in any of the commercial real estate buildings I've been associated with before. Um, usually if you want to use, if you want to use power over the weekend, you got to send something to the building manager, right? And then they'll, they'll then they charge you extra for that because you're using up additional power. They've sort of turned that on its head and said, we're going to give credit to those people who use the natural lighting in the building more than any energy at all. And so they get energy credits based on the use of natural lighting that's supplying, you know, 75% of the building can, can uh, is that natural light is let through in those areas. And so it's quite a different model that focuses in on uh, the, 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 the E part and the social part being that communication within those tenant applications that provides them the opportunity to uh, call transportation, to understand uh, where the food opportunities are, to schedule medical appointments and to interface with the building systems and control the indoor air quality and the environment. Um, and then the governance component, you know, they were very quick to adopt LEED certification. I, and, and Derek, uh, I, I agree, but you, you get that and you hang it on your building and then you don't do anything anymore, right? That's not what they were doing. So they were really focusing in on uh, tr trying to generate more power using that solar energy, selling it back, or back to the government's electrical grid when the building was not in use or in, 
in a lower energy environment. So it, it, it really is um, a verb that we can all start using of how well we are ESGing, I think, from, from day to day. Uh, in the article that Chuck was mentioning, um, it's just posted in the chat. So if you want to take a look at that um, regarding the ESGing. Um, so an, another question that, um, that Whitespace gets involved with on a lot of these projects is, how does the communication infrastructure or how does it look for, for the smart districts? And how do you ensure seamless connectivity throughout the district? Um, Chuck, I'll start with you because you, you had the biggest project up there, but um, how, how important is that? And you know who controls what in, in, in that project? Well, what was great about that was, uh, again, I, I, being a network guy, that's my background. And whenever the, you know, they told me about this campus network at this, uh, this district in, uh, outside of Hanoi, the controls that they put on on that network they, they all of the buildings connect through the campus network using the right the firewalls that they control and that's that's just a, a great way to do it because there's no individual buildings or companies bringing those to, to to say hey how can i get access to the internet you connect to the campus network you're automatically uh protected through cybersecurity and through through appropriate firewalls uh so all of the the, whether it's Technopark Tower, Vin University, or the subsidiaries within the buildings, uh, and they can provide internet to all of those multifamily homes uh, through that through that network. And so it's quite a uh, quite an operation to have a centrally managed converged network like that. Yeah, and I, and I would just jump in. Um, one of our projects that was also mentioned in last Thursday's weekly briefing. Um, Good for you. Water Street Tampa down in Tampa. Um, you know, one of the important things there on this, you know, multi-acre site uh, was control of that connectivity, control of conduits, control of pathways. Um, how we set it up after that is fine, but we, we, we really believe in that underlying connectivity. A little hard to do in a, in a city because of easements and who controls what, but in these districts, especially if there's private property, it's very important to understand what land you control and what you can put under the ground to control that connectivity um, because that connectivity can go to lights uh, street lights it can go to kiosks not just the buildings it can go to things out in the master in, in, in the common areas um, to, to create that frictionless experience Derek I see I see you nodding your head did you how did how did you guys handle that uh, the connectivity for your project in Pittsburgh yes yeah, so we have a a, a data data lake that uh, brings all the different data into a common data platform. Um, essentially, um, you know, focusing on liberating our building data so that it's not, um, you know, uh, proprietary to, to this vendor versus that vendor, but that we can bring it all to one source and be able to, uh, you know, tap into that uh, and ultimately through a created uh, smart building uh, network. Um, but that, that data lake is really the connector to, to all these different uh, components that we're measuring. Um, and, and that's how we're able to converge it, you know, in, into one centralized place. Um, another audience question, uh, are you providing an app-based, technology-based community experience for tenants and visitors of the smart district? Chuck, I see you smiling. I, 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 again, I don't want to dominate, but you, you know, I mentioned it during the presentation. They, that was uh, another interesting piece. Uh, a tenant uh, drives into the into the parking deck, 
and the building senses their, their car, uh, very similar to the River South project we saw before. Uh, it tells them on the app using Bluetooth uh, capability where to park because of an available parking space. It's got uh, motion sensors uh, to control lighting inside that parking deck because of the carbon monoxide uh, emissions of cars because it's in those that's three three floors in the basement of that building. It uh, senses the concentration and then based on concentrations, it'll bump up the air exchanges to six and to nine air exchanges per hour automatically. You don't have to do anything. And then when you walk in, that app allows entry into the building because it knows who you are and uh, whether it's whether you've opted in for facial recognition or even if you haven't it provides that tells you which of the 24 high-speed elevators to go stand at wait for that you get in the thing it takes you to your floor and before you get to the floor it's automatically adjusting the air temperature and humidity in your in the in your space uh, based on your preferences uh, and uh, if you if you're Elevator is going to be delayed. You can punch up a, co a coffee and have that uh, available for you to walk into the coffee bar. So uh, that uh, transportation schedules of that uh, e-bus uh, uh, tell you where you parked when you go return back to the parking garage. They, they've really spent a lot of time developing those applications, and we've seen those applications from other companies who have been on calls like this that really make a big difference, not just for the tenants, but for the citizens within the, the, the district. Yeah, and I know we all, most of us don't want to download a new app, but for, for these smart cities, when you have those kind of amenities that are all tied to that application, I think it makes you want to download those even more. Um, Derek, are, are you and your, your projects, are you guys creating your own app? Are you creating any kind of experiential um, experience through any kind of apps? Sure. Um, I'm not sure if it's, if it's our own app. That's more a question for our consultant, but I can tell you that it will be uh, able to, uh, you know, converse with, with mobile phone. Um, so, you know, whether you are uh, wanting to control the temperature in, in your unit, uh, and, and again, our, our, our buildings are smart as well as sustainable. So Passive House reduces uh, energy costs by north of 70%. Um, but, you know, being able to educate the tenant on what that means and how to properly uh, operate that system, uh, our, our phone, their phone will be able to do that. Also, uh, you know, getting into our bike storage, um, you know, uh, we will be along the BRT. The BRT is actually uh, infrastructure, transportation infrastructure being built by uh, our, our local um, county um, connecting downtown to Oakland. Um, through electric um, buses. So we'll be a stop for the BRT, um, you know, really making this a mobility uh, transit-oriented development. But, uh, but, but that technology can tell you when the next, you know, BRT bus is coming. So, um, you know, there, there'll be several, com several components uh, like that. Not everything will be available, um, you know, to the residents, um, but some things will be. Um, but but definitely we'll have that technology uh, with, with in that infrastructure within the building. Building. Jason, Jason, are you guys collecting any any of this kind of data, um, user data, user movement at all in City Zenith currently? Um, so our customers are. Um, we we 
we have a, an area within our platform which is a developer area so we call it twin apps um, so each of our customers they have their own desired outcomes their own desired um, functionalities often that is being able to push and pull information from the digital twin into mobile applications um, um, online service generation etc so we allow for our customers to actually create those connections or even code on top of the platform and run it as a service in its own right. Um, so whilst we don't do an out of the box mobile application, we are working with customers that have their own um, operating systems that they want to push and pull data from the twin, uh, whether it's purely on the visualization side, whether it's the data interaction side, um, whether it's more on the, uh, the back end analytics piece, we we just open the doors and allow them to to plug in as they see fit. Okay. And, and Tyler, you may, I think you mentioned you guys are using apps uh, in that building uh, to allow a, a better user experience and and uh, residents or tenants to, to to control their space. Is that correct? That's correct. So I'm I'm just going to hold up. This is our controller screen that we've created for the system, which we think is important, right? I mean. If you're going to put in a smart system, there's nothing worse than nobody knowing that it's there because it all looks the same. It doesn't look different. So uh, we built specifically a drag and drop signage program that you can incorporate into your building. And this is controlling the lights behind me. I can change up the the light color and temperature. But that's that is these are the kinds of things that yes, you do need to have for your facility and be need to develop. Um, some notes though that that we struggle with that are ones that that come into this is where the security becomes really important what are the kinds of things you allow people to control from a phone outside the network versus what are the kinds of things you can only control with inside the network so that's one of those key areas that we have lots of conversations with um, but like uh, Jason we do have an API that's secure inside the network that gives you a lot more freedom. And then we do have outs, an outside API to integrate with a larger app that our customers bring because they want to have this larger phone experience for their customers. But we keep that very restricted for security purposes so it's not an easily hacked system. You know, I want to add something to, to Tyler's uh, conversation too because I just I was just on the phone with your colleague, Joseph Herbst. Uh, and uh, we talked a lot about different opportunities within buildings. I'd done some consulting for schools, and we've talked about uh, one of the things he said was, you know how schools now, they're very concerned about uh, active shooter, and even buildings want to know active shooter. What happens during a fire alarm, uh, you, and, and how do you lock the building down? And some of these can be a one-touch, put down the blinds, change the light structure to a, a different color, you know the building's in lockdown. Um, that one of the functions of the app at uh, Techno Park Tower, it, uh, and many of us who've been inside a large tower building, you typically get fire marshals, right? You're, you're, you're the designated fire marshal for your section. And your responsibility is for the eight people that you work in your department, you're supposed to get them out of the building and to a rally point, right? Well, what happens when somebody's not in the building, or somebody's down getting lunch, or when does the you know when does the fire alarm go off? These apps now are smart enough to tell you building's fire alarm is on. Here's the closest exit to you, and here's how to get to your rally point. Uh, the building lighting can change using some of the controls that Poe Texas is talking about. 
They can uh, lock the doors. They can, uh, yeah, and put, you know, adjust the windows. Uh, so from a safety perspective, in combination with the tenant apps, I think some of these new technologies like that are just fascinating to what what can happen. Even to a school like some of the schools I've 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 done work with, and uh, they're they're small. You know, they're only 500 person private school. They can't afford all that stuff, but they could afford taking out their fluorescent tubes and putting in putting in uh, uh, LED lighting. They could afford that. They could afford some of the um, uh, uh, USB connections for their students to connect their uh, devices to, uh, and so so it just it, you build that into the strategy going forward. Is so just a, a shout out to what you guys are doing over there, Tom. Thank you, Chuck. And, and one thing that I would point out with smart districts and smart cities, why it is so important and, and having good signage. You pointed out another thing. The most dangerous part of an active shooter situation is that people don't know where to go. And as often as not, people are running toward the active shooting situation as opposed to away from it. And having good signage and good communication methods that can be intuitive, they're clear, they don't require you to stop and think about what the system is telling you, but the system is saying, this is your exit path, this is the, the right way to go. Those are so essential because uh, we're, we're living in a modern age. Like you said, if we're relying on people, people get sick, people stay home from work. Having a system that manages a good part of that is a huge benefit. So thank well, you very much, only, Chuck. I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, I think yeah. not only that, one of the things that I found fascinating about the Technopark Tower was the uh, the number of cameras that they have and what they do with that. The artificial intelligence uh, algorithms sense weapons and sense uh, people on wanted lists. They can, they can do all of that. And if they lock the building down, that that can tell the uh, law enforcement where those people are in the building uh, once once they're detected. And so, uh, it, it, the, I think we're evolving into a situation where not only do we have to reach that kind of an extreme situation, but if someone is injured, they've fallen down, and uh, and the artificial intelligence can tell the difference between a person standing and a difference and a person laying down. And it can alert the building management, can alert authorities and, and local law enforcement. So uh, very interesting. The technology is definitely changing the way we're operating our assets. Um, well, I think um, that about wraps it up. Sarah, can I call you back in? Yes, thank you so much, Mike, for moderating the session. Really appreciate it. And thanks to the panelists for sharing your insights about your smart districts with the community. Um, and thanks to the audience for joining us today. I know everyone has very busy schedule these days, so very appreciative of everyone's time this morning and afternoon, depending on where you are. I do want to invite you to join us for our next webinars. We have another webinar coming up this Thursday, where we will talk about the flexible hybrid workplace environments. And then we have a webinar coming up next week, Wednesday, on access control and video monitoring. That's actually a great segue from what we were just talking about, the cameras in smart districts. So we'll talk about more um, on the building level, um, access control, um, video monitoring, and kind of the privacy concerns that are related to that. So thanks again for today, and I hope to see you soon. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you.